This episode of Super yeah. Pulp Science is brought to you by Love You to Death, live music to dead films. If you would like to come to a screening of King Kong, Creature of the Black Lagoon, and Werewolf of London, chopped up into tiny pieces and performed with live musicians, then you should come to the Park Theater February 14th. Tickets available at myparktheater.com. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am GMB Kamichak, known professionally that way anyway. My first name's Gregory, though. Don't let all those funny initials fool you. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, who has very graciously been your maximum host for the last two episodes, dear listeners, so I really appreciate that. And our producer, Dan Vatamonker, who's also been a co-host really as long... How many episodes are we in? It's two. And where the hell have you been, man? Well, I'm not sure if I have to answer (laughs) these questions under these conditions. I've been doing a lot of different stuff. Sort of three things have been controlling my time right now. Prepping for Love You to Death, our cinema seance. Uh... I've been a. I think you need to go back and unpack Cinema Seance just a little bit. Well, it's the second one of those. It's a. It's the second one. It's a live this could music. Be somebody's first episode. <laughs> okay, well we'll come around. There's a Cinema Seance. We have desecrated four old films, chopped them into pieces, reassembled them together into three new films, and these dead films we will be presenting with live music, live scores, that uh, I have. Uh, undertaken to arrange for this and one of the sort of MacGuffins of Love You to Death is there are four band members and a fifth secret band member which is the film itself so we cut the silent film together and give it to the band and they work with that member and I don't get to see or hear the arrangement until the actual presentation along with the audience. So it's an edited down film, and then the band watches that and comes up with a unique score, creative score That's right. to go with that newly cut down film. Can you say what the films are? Yeah, so this year it's uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, King Kong, and The Werewolf of London. Which I didn't know. There was, I in my mind, that was always the, what is it? The American Werewolf in London is usually the 80s one? Yeah, like the, the, 80s the one, one with the amazing practical effects? I didn't realize there was one before that there's like an old black one? and white one with yeah. some pretty amazing practical effects in a few scenes and we used those oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome that's great i love watching old movies with their old special effects it looks so cool yeah, you know? yeah. it's kind of uh, well and the other thing too about love you to death is we're it's not the story of king kong it's not the story of creature of the black lagoon we excise the majority of the film and we put them down to 20-minute sets, so the same as like a musical set for a band. And uh, in doing so, rearrange the film according to a different plot. And that plot theme is love you to death. So like someone falls in love. Collage? Um, you know, you could argue that it's a new film, but the same way that you could argue that if you take your grandmother's old recipe and you add a little bit more garlic somehow you've invented something that's not true we we give credit where it's due the director's full name original director is there we give the uh, credit for the edit but we don't take credit for the film so is it the gregory cut 
Yeah, it's the love you to death. We call it Creature of Black Lagoon, love you to death. Right. Right? And uh, so, spoiler alerts. For example, in the original King Kong, of course, the horrible colonizers go to an island and they stir up trouble and then they leave and they try to make money from it. Uh, and they come out okay at the end. Uh, in our version, King Kong eats the... We did an edit where the fiancé uh, is eaten by King Kong. There's this great sequence where King Kong eats a man in a tuxedo. And there's a great sequence where the fiancé is almost grabbed by King Kong. But if you edit it just right, then the fiancé is eaten by King Kong, nice. <laughs> for example. So these kinds of things we have uh, undertaken to make a new experience for audiences. That sounds like fun. And last year we did Metropolis, Nosferatu, and uh, Bride of Frankenstein. And, you know, I thought they would be pushed back because the first two are silent and the last one was a talkie that we made silent. And so editing around anytime people's lips are moving is a was a trick mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. time. But it was a really, man, it really freed me in the edit to just discount so much of the film as you are assembling your footage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Creature is a talkie, and so is Werewolf of London, and so is King Kong, and we've edited them down to silent films. So we're cutting around any time that someone would be delivering performance with dialogue. No, the, none of those scenes are present, so it's just the uh, moment before they react, the moment before they say something, and so cutting around those performances is very different than cutting up an old silent film where there was no dialogue. Are there vocals with the band? Uh, uh, I don't know. You're not sure, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, here's the best can we, part. Can we ask, uh, who's in the band? Okay, so the band we assembled this year is Derek Allard. He's our dread drummer of the deep. Carrie Latimer, and um, the, this is just how they're occurring to me, but Carrie Latimer is the reason we have the ensemble in the arrangement we have. Carrie Latimer is our theremin player. And when the whole idea first started, when we're going to recut Nosferatu, I said, you know, we've got to have a theremin player. I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. And so Joey Senf uh, knew that one of uh, sort of North America's greatest theremin players uh, was in Leaf Rapids and is here and was a friend. And so uh, asked Carrie to be a part. Uh, Natalie Felicitas is uh, on cello. Oh. And man uh from last year's performance there was there's an underlying power of the cello to make everything feel both beautiful and haunted i cannot wait to see what they're doing and rafael reyes on guitar oh yes so nice he's been on the podcast of the grave he has been on the podcast yeah yeah well we had uh actually i'm not sure if our dear listeners if i put it in the archive or we had it live but i recorded a creative session with all of them after the fact to talk about that creative process mm -hmm. i'm not sure if we ever aired it just in our schedule where I don't our remember. schedule was so i definitely have it so maybe this is the time to pull those out of the archive and, uh put it together so you know it's really just an excuse to for me practice in a uh, art form that i really love admire which is filmmaking uh and use the best ingredients and my favorite ingredients and you know when some people say that film is an editor's medium, right? Yeah, actors usually take great offense to this, and directors take great offense <laughs> to this. Everyone else involved doesn't right? like yeah. that. But there is a sort of, there is a logic to recognizing that if you have uh, three hours of footage and you only need 20 minutes, it becomes a, you know, becomes a puzzle you're putting together. And 
the choices you make in the puzzle, of course, require the good shot, require the good cinematography, require the good performance. Those things are almost, um, they go without saying that you need all of those pieces. If you don't have those pieces, no one will watch a 20-minute version of your film or a two-hour version of your film. doesn't matter how you edit it together. The ingredients have to be good. Right. And yeah. so for me, rather than try to shoot those ingredients myself and then try to assemble a film that people would care about, I thought it would be fun to practice. And we've done six now, and we have uh, perhaps three more for next year that we're planning. Oh, do you already have the ones picked out for next year? Not picked out, no. Um, and we'll see. A few new things are slipping into the public domain next year. so that may And that's the qualifier? It has to be in the public domain? Uh, it's not always. like So in Canada, there's a nebulous, uh, like, for example, Wolf of London is in the public domain firmly everywhere. Uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon is contested in Canada. Yeah, isn't that a universal monster? Yeah, it's a universal monster, but um, how they protected their copyright and how they didn't is sort of under some contestation. So we are really a band that has a video playing, so we fall under a fair use. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Right? So The point of the show isn't the movie. Yeah, it's the band, not the movie. And so we have enough things that you would consider this to be a, a derivative work rather than claiming the rights, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we have not excised anybody's original credits in the film either, so that's an important <laughs> distinction. Yeah. Um, so we to get the lawsuit. And King Kong, the universe. original King Kong, is firmly in the public domain. So Creature is one of those ones where we're swimming in murky waters. Okay. Appeal, uh, for Just like the, the Creature. Pun. Yeah. What that is, Dr. Mayer? I don't know, Louise. I have never seen anything like this before. Is it important? Yes, I think it is very important. And Creature is a fun film to revisit uh, from a modern perspective because many of the shots are still, how did they do that? You know? that underwater photography. Yeah. And how they did it was they literally just did it. They just risked everyone's lives and went underwater and did it, mm-hmm. you know? And um, not to take away from the stunt choreography, which was very carefully constructed and the diving suit, you know, all that things. But stuff went wrong, apparently, in the production. And it got iffy a couple of different times. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. So, so it's, uh, yeah. So I've been doing that. Okay. That's one thing I've been doing. Then the other thing I've been doing, if I switch channels, uh, not related to movies at all, another love of mine is teaching and teaching storytelling and narrative. And so I was invited by uh, SJR, St. John's Ravens Court, for those uh, abroad, not from Winnipeg, a private school in Winnipeg to come and do some uh, writer-in-residencies. So I've got 13 days on the calendar where I come and I work with students on their writing and I do seminars with classes. And that's been a pretty fun experience and gets me back in the classroom, which I... So it's not a set class you're kind of jumping around yeah i've been working with students from grade two all the way up to grade 12 um and what they all have in common is they're very interested in their own personal writing work and so the school has seen that you know in sjr their mission statement of course uh claims to be this uh, academic you know high watermark but in the pursuit of that academic, sometimes personal writing, personal narrative, personal explorations get left by the wayside. And so they thought a good way to address that and give students access to and encouragement in uh, those areas would be to bring in someone who's doing it. For yeah, and you've done this before, right? Didn't you do it at UW? I've done, yeah. yeah, I did yeah. at the UFW. I've been a writer in residency before. Yeah, variations of this all over the place. Yeah, and I love visiting classrooms that are interested in 
how the work is done. Yeah, and it's, and so, I love to read months, so yeah, lots of school visits yeah, lined so up a, for the month. And you've got some too there coming up. Yeah, I have one at the same school, yeah. um, and then I've got three or four other ones that have uh, in different stages yeah. of confirmation. So I'll be doing a couple school visits. An amusing so. anecdote here, though, is our assumption when I found out that Justin also got invited was that they knew that we worked together and so they were just, you know, crossing that easy for themselves, crossing the T's. In fact, no, the two different school librarians knew us by different reputations. And then one day while I was there, they're like, oh, you don't happen to know how to reach Justin Curry. I just want to get a, I was like, uh, like, that's a joke, right? You know, we work in the same, and they had no idea, (laughs) right? And they're like, you know, so it's just... Um, one of those things, like you said, uh, around I Love to Read Month, school librarians are looking for people who have visited schools and teachers talk, librarians talk. Yeah. If you did a pretty good job, um, they usually want you back on the list. So. Yeah, I think when we started out doing, like the when I first started having books, I reached out to probably like 12 different schools to like arrange for visits and, and get the ball rolling. And this year, I didn't reach out to anybody, but I've been approached by about six different schools. Yeah. Oh, wow. Some of them, like I've never been to before, just like you said, it's a librarian's talk and teacher's yeah. talk. And, and you put in the work. And you know what it really comes to is kids' talk. Hmm. So school librarians, I think more than anybody, even school administrators, hear what students are actually saying about the people who visited the schools. And so if they have heard that name a number of times from the students, that's what they consider the endorsement. Right? So... Mm-hmm. It's really hard to bamboozle a school librarian, you know, because they understand how books work completely and they understand how students engage with books completely. So you can't really, you know, um, confuse them with a flash bomb and then get a speaking (laughs) engagement. You have to, you know, have done the work. But it's a good idea to do this. And so you read Dragon Nanny? Is that what you do? Or do you read? So I don't I don't read books. That's usually everybody's first question is like, okay, so what are you going to read? It's like, I'm not reading them story that's that's not why i'm there it's called i love to read my i justin. know i know but they love reading they do love reading so justin's okay. job is to encourage them as why books are amazing and wonderful and how oh. they're put together so okay. i take it as an opportunity to do a bit of how to tell stories with pictures and how i tell stories with pictures and more of a geared towards i'm a, a professional illustrator with a career and this is a thing and making books for a living is a thing making comics for a living is a thing Mm -hmm. it's more of like thinking back to when i was in school how much that would have meant to me if somebody had come and had that chat and so that's usually what i'm i'm uh bringing and if it's it always depends on like the the age group right like the presentation i do for grade k to one is very different from nine to twelve Um, for the younger kids, sometimes it gets into, I'll have a, an easel with some paper and I'll do some sketching and get the kids to like yell out suggestions and do some interactive stuff like that. But I find just, hey, everybody sit down, I'm going to read you a story is the least exciting idea on my plate. So <laughs> Some people are good at that. Some people are. That's some not people me. are good at that. I just watched no it. No shade. Did you guys people watch who are good at that. Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. There was that one episode with the guy reading in the library, and they tried to outdo him, and they couldn't. Or they did, I think. I don't know. It was pretty funny. They had to do a big gimmick. It was all about the gimmick That's of right. sorry, the I love to read guy. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, and it's challenging because uh, students are not interested in your feelings. Right. Their mm-hmm. attention is what is you know up for grabs, and it's important. Their attention to them is important. So you have mm-hmm. to try and. Uh, manage it and so yeah i have lots of different uh bells and whistles that i use yeah. at different grade levels but uh 
usually with older students, it's very easy to just be honest about what they think. You know, you don't present yourself as an expert, not like, hey, here's a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to tell you that always works. Instead, here's a bunch of stuff that I thought would work that absolutely did not work mm-hmm. in my career is usually a great way to start because you are the expert on your own journey and it didn't go as well as you thought it was. And the time of, oh, I'm a genius and I'm perfect and I'm flawless, uh, you know, follow me, I'm an influencer, I think is finally on the wane. And mm-hmm. so showing up and saying, oh, I thought it would be easy, but it was this and this and this and this and this is a much more easy way to engage with people mm-hmm. in that in that spectrum. So you've been teaching. I've been teaching. Kind of, but it's cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love, I love teaching. It's fun. I lo- you love to teach. Is there I love, a lo- I love to teach month? Um, I mean, that's, there's 12 of those. <laughs> Walked into that one. Got him. We got him. Don't kill him. And then the third thing is that I have been out in an undisclosed location. And they asked us to keep the, dis- the location actually undisclosed. I'm sure uh, anyone listening to previous podcasts. <laughs> Shit, you said it already, didn't you? That's like the only tidbit I had about it. Was exactly I have to go back and edit was. it out? Is that what you're telling me? No, I think okay. it's okay because the, the ship sailed, right? Okay. By the time that episode came out, all our gear was gone. Okay. Right? Okay. And so the idea here is that we were out in an undisclosed location, <laughs> fellow producers. See episode. Um, in an old, I mean, you don't have to spend long Googling. In an abandoned sanatorium mm-hmm. overlooking a lake in rural Manitoba. And we were shooting a horror movie called The Princess and the Dragon there. Nine-day shoot. Uh, we did eight days of principal photography there. And there's one more day sort of owed to the production that we're doing later when our cinematographer is back from another job. Um, it was a wild it was a wild ride. I was there for six of the eight days. And those days were eight hours. Then you had lunch. Then eight hours, then you had dinner. So that's how the workday worked on our Holy crap. So, uh, and we were very well fed. So it is actually, it sounds like depilitating and demoralizing, but in fact, uh, when... The craft's food table was made it all worth it? Well, and the people, uh, the production arranged for us to have all of our craft services at the local restaurant. So it was hot hot meals served to you, Mm. right? So it was very different than... You know, we were very micro-budget production, but we'll, and so in a big or micro-production, whatever, usually it is, like you said, craft services table, and everyone just comes there, and they eat, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's not, and it can be very uneven, but there was something about leaving minus 28 degrees abandoned building, and then going and sitting down, and someone serves you a meal. It covered a multitude of sins for me. Yeah, for sure. Right? That's nice. Yeah, I know. It sounds silly, but it mm-hmm. was a big deal. Um, so, Gregory, you're just a writer and an artist. What were you doing on the set of a movie? What gives you the right? Well, my co-writer uh, on this film, Dr. Jonathan Ball, um, we had written a number of years ago. We wrote a little novella that came out of an idea for a different film that didn't get made uh, a number of years before that, just before pandemic uh the people at Electric Monk Media had access to the old, in Winnipeg, the old RCMP forensics labs. And just before they were about to be renovated into, I don't know, condos or who knows what, but... Probably condos. Right? The, I don't, I actually have never gone back to check what went there afterwards, but uh, the building itself was this gem of 
cool administrative offices in some disrepair, uh, forensic lab areas, this weird posh 60s decor library that looked for sure like where you'd have a cult meeting, uh, <laughs> and a like vehicle storage area that was underground. You know, So the idea here in the construction of the original building at that time was you could bring a corpse or a, or a uh, body that needed to be forensically investigated, and they would get onto a rail system that ran through the entire building. And so it would oh. carry that thing, including into the elevators. So the rail would connect inside the elevators and then reconnect and is this on the, on the ceiling. So yeah, like, on the yeah. ceiling, like a rail that the body could float around. And, you know, to us, this was, we don't know what it's for. There's, there's an idea here. Let's write a story that fits this. Hmm. Right? Okay. Because you had the location. So you wrote the script for the, for location. the location. And so the punchline here, dear listener, is uh, it had to be a super small crew because we were looking down the barrel of pandemic. It had to be the kind of location where you could seal the set and you could know that everyone who was inside, you know, had passed their tests and they could be in there together for long working hours. And so there's all of these check boxes. And we produced a number of treatments and actual full film scripts for that location. Never got made. So it went to producer level, started being explored, budgets, all these things. So one of the ideas that came out of there was a story called The Princess and the Dragon, which I really liked as a concept, and I liked it so much that I started writing it as a story. And then I invited Jonathan. I said, you know, let's co-write this. I'll do a draft. You polish the draft. Then I'll polish your polish of the draft, and we'll just see what happens. It's very short, little novella. And he liked the idea enough, and we had had some great conversations about what horror is and what horror isn't and what a fairy tale is and what a fairy tale isn't. And we thought, let's just... Let's do everything that isn't script making and tell it as a prose story. And man, it was so freeing to do that mm -hmm. because scripting is very uh, um, one note, mm -hmm. let's say, when you're writing. Uh, so put that to bed. So we had a treatment, a rough script, and then a finished novella. Fast forward a number of years, the producers uh, for a different film, uh, which actually will remain nameless for now because they're still developing it, uh, came to me, uh, Miles Crossman, and he said, uh, you know, I want you to do some pre-visualization on this movie that I'm working on. And you've done it for other films and other projects, and I've seen some of it, and, and uh, you worked with Eric on uh, some previs for a different movie. We've heard, talked about it on the uh, podcast, The Meat, Mm -hmm. So there's that connection. Right. I had done a bunch of that previs, a film that uh, never got made or maybe still will get made. It's hard to know. And all that to be said, we were sitting here doing that work and they got a phone call. Miles got a phone call and he was kind of upset about the phone call. He was like, ah, you know, we're about to lose this great location and I don't have a script. And I said, ah, I wish I could help you out. And he said, unless you've got some low budget horror movie scripts uh, set in a single location with a super small crew, you can't really help us out. And it was literally like that easy. It was like, oh, well, I do have some of those. Here, let me read them to you. And I opened up my Google Docs where they were and read him the slug line for three different ones. And he said, that one, Princess and the Dragon, tell me more about that one. What's the essential premise of that? What's the essential premise? And the essential premise is that a princess is put in an undisclosed location and put into the same place is a person called the dragon. And one has an axe and a hammer and one has a tiny little knife and a dumb princess costume. And they can't communicate to each other and violence ensues as a result. And the punchline is that uh, the dragon's mask has been 
glued, adhered to his face, and so he cannot communicate. He needs help just like she does. But because he looks more menacing, she tries to defend herself every time they get close to each other. And he's always carrying this hammer and this axe. And so, of course, he looks dangerous. She finds out after she has won the battle that they've been screwed and, and adhered to his hands, so he couldn't have put them down even if he wanted to. And it's like a sociological experiment to see you know, whether or not humans can you know, find that common ground. And when the princess wins, she is uh, captured again, and they take her princess costume off, and they put the dragon costume on her, and they adhere oh, her no. weapons to her, and no. they start the whole thing again. And that's when you realize that there's, uh, it's just this constant cycle. Listen to the sounds. Hunting calls, mostly. Animals out for the kill. Some of them are cries of fear. Like people who whistle in the dark. That was the essential premise that uh, got rewritten a number of times. To so wait, had the dragon won? Would they have taken his stuff off and put him in the princess? Princess outfit? I don't know. I never got that far <laughs> in my mind. No, because the princess is... The princess just always wins? Yeah. Well, no. The the usually loses. loses. Usually yeah. loses. And oh, okay. there's like... The and the dragon just stays there until the next princess until comes. The princess, yeah. Until they can be replaced, yeah. right? But the... In our story, the story starts with a man in a princess costume in our novella and we don't know some undisclosed it gives you kind of gives away some of the some of the ghosts right from the start that mm -hmm. who is the princess and who is the dragon is obviously a fluid concept being pushed upon by this doctor storybook by the storybook group mm -hmm. and uh they liked that idea and asked if we would uh show them the script for it and we said well we could show you the outline of our old script but this new location is so different mm -hmm. uh let's go walk the location let's go see the ground so we drove out and we saw the place and then we jonathan and i wrote uh rewrote a draft that fit the location better and then uh miles and eric rewrote that draft to fit their vision of what kind of story they wanted to tell uh with the resources they had assembled and uh that gave me the right to be on set in small independent productions... Everybody wears a lot of hats, yeah. has a lot of jobs. You know, if you pick it up, you have to carry it, <coughs> is sort of the rule, Yeah. right? So if you don't want to carry those lights for the rest of the shoot, don't pick them up the first time, right? So while I was there, it became very clear that because the building is quite large and our crew is uh, small, relatively small, big for an independent production, there was 25 people on the crew, um, and we didn't have enough radios, we didn't have enough walkies, there would be this moment where there was too much lag between uh, when we were blocking and we were planning a shot and what was happening in makeup and performance. And so I foolishly picked up a clipboard and started keeping track of stuff. And the funny moment there is on the first day when I came back with that clipboard, Caitlin, our makeup, uh, hair and makeup lead, she goes, oh... You're a clipboard guy now. Are you sure you want to do that? You can hide that under here if you want. And she like showed me her table. She's like, you just tuck that right under here if you don't want. I was like, what do you mean? No, I just need, don't want the papers to blow away in the wind. And she's like, no, now that you have the clipboard, you know what that means. And I legitimately did not know what it meant until people started asking me questions. Like every person on that crew started asking me for answers. And if you pick it up, you got to carry it. So then I kind of was this hybrid script supervisor, continuity supervisor, and sort of 
limited capacity first AD all at the same time simply because I was always with either the talent or the director and the cinematographer. And so because I had that chain of custody of the idea, I would transmit the chain of that custody of the idea so that in the travel time as the actor is moving their way through the abandoned building, they can get themselves into the things they have to do so that when they get on set, they can be more prepared. Hmm. It was a, it was a wild time. I thought I'd get to just sit in a comfy chair and watch other people work really hard. Instead, I had to work really hard the whole time. Well, yeah, eight days, you said? Of shooting? Eight days like, of shooting. I was only there for six because yeah, I guess there was one more thing I did. I, I escaped to Gamatoba for the last two days of Which of is shooting. Winnipeg's gaming convention. So first show of the year. It was technically my first show of the year, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, filmmaking, I like filmmaking. I love it. I like to play around in that world. Uh, teaching, obviously, I love teaching. I like to play around in that world. I love making comics and graphic novels. Obviously, that's why we have this podcast. But another sort of channel in my head is the design and implementation of tabletop role-playing games and things related to that. So I had three new publications that I was playtesting for Game of Toba. Otherwise, I would have been on the film set. And I had this moment where we've used, uh, we've evoked uh, Neil Gaiman before on the podcast where he talks about you got to be able to see the mountain, right? And as whatever job you're doing, if you can see the mountain that you wish you were climbing, it's probably okay. If you can't see the mountain from there, look for another job until you can see the mountain and move towards it. Well, I had this thing where I always wanted to have my idea on the clacker board, right? As they yell action, clack, and it's your film name there, Princess and the Dragon. And I'd always wanted to be welcome on the set of something I had created, right? But at the same time, for my entire adolescent life and into my adult life, I had been working on and designing a system of rules and storytelling conventions for this game, which I had already committed to launch at Game of Tova. Mm-hmm. So I had this thing where I'd picked up the clipboard. I'd picked it up and I had to carry it. I felt very conflicted that I was going to have to leave that role. So uh, poor Jonathan got thrust, <laughs> whether he liked it or not, into that role in my absence. Um, to uh, hmm. take over all that continuity. And I went to the gaming convention, yeah. How was it? It was so good. Yeah, because very different vibe than like a, a Comic-Con or a craft oh. sale or anything like that. This so is different. more about playtesting game. Like Nobody's were, there to sell anything. That's not why they're there. Everybody's there with yeah. their games or some are just running their favorite games or... What yes, are, yes, yeah. and yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there are some people who are just like absolutely love a certain kind of game, be it a board game or a card game or whatever, and they host that and they will give so them... So this is the risk table. We're playing risk Exactly, yeah, and then you have your GM, your game master yeah. for that table and you can sign up or not sign up. It's uh, They have an app for it. So you can see how many people are available, how many seats are available at a table at any given moment, and then plop yourself in there. And the awkwardness of, what I actually really like about it is the awkwardness of, can I play with you guys, is uh, ameliorated by this. Well, the, the whole premise of the convention is that you can sit down, yes, the answer is always yes, you yeah. can play with yeah. us. You can play with us, and they're strangers, but it doesn't matter. You're Everyone's strangers, from, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And so for a, from a playtesting point of view, I found last year's Game of Toba to be so instructive and so wonderful and i took so many notes and so many uh anecdotes away that was your first time for the redesign really doing that or it was the first time it wasn't the first time where i had played the game with a group of strangers it wasn't the first time where i had uh had to sustain you know telling the rules to a big group of people but it was the first time where 
that group of strangers were strangers to each other and to me. And communication has to be that much more clear. If you bring your old gaming group over and they have like a new temporary person running a game, you and your friends all have the shorthand of how to communicate to each other and fill in the gaps for everybody for clarity. You know, you know your people. Uh, when everybody is new, then how you have to communicate what is expected from everybody's participation is very different. And I found it very instructive. Because unlike a classroom setting where uh, sort of you're the boss, and so shut up and listen. If you don't understand, put up your hand. I mean, that's not how I run my class, but just to That's paint. how I run my class. <laughs> just to paint a picture. Shut up and listen. Um, uh, this is supposed to be a collaborative effort, right? So how do you get people to understand how a collaborative storytelling game works and participate and have a good time? Uh, so I ran 13 90-minute sessions over three days and uh, play tested and I would do this thing so dear listener if one of you was at Game of Toba and you thought man I wonder if that comedic guy's got like a bladder infection or something um, because I would get up I'd say oh excuse me I'm just going to run to the bathroom right Right. Uh, if any of the people who had been there last year came back so some faces you start to recognize you know you, you threw fire and brimstone together you recognize people's faces or they'll say I had a great time last year so I came back I'd say, okay, well, I'm just going to run to the bathroom. Would you mind explaining the rules to everybody while I'm gone? This was my secret test. Mm-hmm. Of, you only played it for those couple of hours a year ago. Can those rules, are they simple and clear enough that in the time it would take me to quote unquote go to the bathroom, can you impart those rules? And so what did you do while you said you were going to the bathroom? I would uh, creep like a psychopath <laughs> peeking around the corner uh, and I'm sure the people at the main game of Toba counter were just like, what is he doing? By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. With that knowledge, perhaps we can teach men to adapt themselves to some new world of the future. I would just peek and watch. And, you know, I imagine not unlike if they had allowed me to stay around at my kid's preschool, you know, like just be so proud when they get it right, stack the little blocks just right, you know. Uh, It was really gratifying to see that work. And when it didn't work, it was also amazingly instructive, Mm -hmm. right? You know, if someone says, oh, I thought it was this, so that's what I was telling them. And that's their entire memory of it was, I thought it was like this. So that's an area of confusion that needs... An area of confusion, but sometimes also what's wild about that is they came back because they thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. So the clarification would change the rules and make it different than what they remembered was a good time, you know? Hmm. And so that, to me, is a really, in a design... They broke it in a fun way, so maybe... Yeah, maybe it's an idea worth yeah. uh, reinvesting in. So it was, uh, you know, it was great. One of the producers from the film, Scott, also I found out... Uh, in the trauma bond that is filmmaking. I found out that he uh, was running off to GaryCon later in the month. Mm. And so that meant I knew that he knew tabletop role-playing. And I asked him if he knew about Game of Toba. And sure enough, he was like, oh, yeah, I know what, yeah, I know that. And then I snuck away from set and went to do my thing. And then I saw him there. <laughs> and he was like, you know, I have to say, my brain is mush. How is it that you're running these games? And... This, I think, typifies the difference between a film set of really at any scale 
and a tabletop role-playing game. Is that, and this is what I said to Scott, everyone has an idea on set, but they don't all come at the right time, and they certainly are not all welcome. But here, everybody's idea is welcome. I don't have to say no to anyone. I don't have to count out to anyone. We can just say yes to every good idea that's on the table. And it was so reinvigorating. Physically, I was exhausted, but I was mentally just so reinvigorated. Yeah, I believe you, you get recharged by the enthusiasm for the other people because uh, there are new people coming in every time to yeah, play the game. That's right. Right. So and I was, I was, it was stacked up. I had a full table, you know. Uh, 12 of the 13 sessions I was packed and I had to bring in extra chairs. So normally I had five seats, sort of bookable seats, um, but the game is sort of, uh, it's very collaborative. So it's very easy to add new players. And so we were often had eight people, sometimes mm -hmm. seven, eight, uh, one time, 10 people that just all piled in to try to kill the wizard, <laughs> you know, so sweet. So cool. it was a wild time. Awesome. To get you excited for other conventions coming up, it's I always find that first show kind of lights the fire for like, oh yeah, I'm. Yeah, I found a switch in my head go off because I had brought a display. Uh, Game and is not about you know it's not sort of about sales, but if you are a local designer, you can sell your stuff. So in the gap when I would normally be able to take a break, people were very interested in purchasing copies for themselves, which was you know, frankly, a nice endorsement of oh I played that. I like it enough that I'd like one for myself, please. So um, that part of the convention brain started clicking in like, oh, right. There is being alone, working on your stuff, wondering, will anyone like this? There's, I think it's good enough. I think I've refined it enough that it's, it can withstand some criticism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it out and show it to people. And then there's, oh, it's, it's survived. It survived its first battle with public opinion. It's strong enough. It's good enough. I cannot wait to take it on the road. I had that feeling for sure. Like, oh, these ideas, they survived. Yeah. You and I both know. Sometimes you might have 20 new pieces and six of them, right, are coming with you. Yep. And the rest are relegated to the bins of our storage. You should try room. to give it a couple of shows. I do find every once in a while something will have a really cold launch in one city and then for whatever reason the next city really gravitates to it. So I try not to make my decisions too hastily. I, I wanna wanna bring it to a couple couple different places before yeah. I decide if it's hot or not. Yeah, but eventually when it's not you gotta drop it. Yeah. It's hard because you worked hard on yeah, it. Yeah right? for You're like, sure. Oh, people will like it, I think. Um, if you really love it, you go in and change the colors, change the composition just a little bit. Maybe it was just that little just tweak. Just a little bit. And, you know, speaking of that, Love You to Death uh, is sort of a fun way for me to experiment with our limited release of prints that are all black and white. So I have a, a new black and white print for each of the films that are there. And um, I was surprised to discover after our black and white film event when I took them out on the road, my um, uh, booth, uh, booth support person, my uh, niece, Signe, was like, oh, we should put these out on display. And I was like, oh, well, you know, we're at Comic-Con. I usually use the color ones here. These were just for this event. And she was sort of like, no, no, these are great in black and white. Let's put these out. And all through the year then, there was a much stronger demand than I had expected for black and white versions of these hmm. uh, posters and prints that I had done so it you know when you experiment 
like you say, with color and composition, you sometimes strike on something that you didn't know people would like. Never know. Yeah. yeah. Cool. We can wrap it up. We can wrap it up. So yeah. that, well, no, we can't just wrap no. it up like that. We need a we need a culminating idea. Oh, do we? Okay. You told us this. I did. <laughs> yes. I don't this remember. Is on the checklist. My of brain is Proper mush. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> proper. Po- we can't just, dear listener. Dan wants us to just wrap it up all of a sudden. Proper podcast procedure. But there is. We were told by our producer. Oh, you know, you're supposed the to. The producer's proper podcast procedures. That's right. I would also tell you you're supposed to do it ahead of time. The point <laughs> form, producer proper podcast procedure. Presented. You're not popping any of these peas. I'm so impressed. <laughs> so, dear listener, I think if there's anything to be learned from my absence is that you probably have lots of different interests, and they're all great, and they're all wonderful, and you don't have to be just one thing. Um, it's if, okay to wear different hats. Yeah, it's okay to wear different hats. In fact, I encourage it because, you know, uh, as you'll learn if you come to Love You to Death, one note does not make a band, right? You need to have lots of different... Uh, ways to express yourself and some of them are great and maybe they are lucrative and other ones just feed your uh, feed your heart that flame inside right I felt over this past week even though I am physically drained uh, I am emotionally full to the brim Mm -hmm. I am creatively cannot wait to start working on pages and things again like I am I'm thrilled thrilled that this is the life we chose and you know, you make it up out of the little pieces that you find around. Uh, we've used the, the Lego example on the podcast a lot, right? You just put all the pieces together, you take them all apart, you put them all back together, and maybe you made something new. So that's how I feel. This has been Super Pulp Science, where we've talked about how genre gets made. I am Gregory Kamichek, encouraging you to join the fight and make comics. Mm-hmm.